0: Welcome to the Armchair Trader podcast and this week we have Elsa Craig who is an investment manager with SV Health Investors but more specifically one of the team responsible for the International Biotechnology Trust. We thought it would be interesting to speak to her today because we've not really done anything yet in the series on the biotech market. Uh, It's a very interesting market but also a very complicated one so we thought we'd get a specialist on the program to just take some questions from us and give investors a little bit more of a grounding about this particular market and what makes it tick. This podcast is provided for information purposes only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It should not be considered as an offer, investment recommendation, investment research, or solicitation to invest in the International Biotechnology Trust. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication. So uh, welcome. Welcome to the show, Elsa. Hi, Stuart. Basically, I thought we'd just start off, um, if we could, with just some sort of definition about the biotech sector. There are
1: two definitions um, for biotech within what we look at. So first of all, there's the industry definition. And this really is saying that biotech compounds are proteins and much more complicated than the little small white tablets you get made chemically. And that was considered originally healthcare, and biotech was the proteins. Um, uh, This was approximately 20 years ago. But these days, uh, it's more of a capital markets definition. So when people say biotech now, they mean higher growth, um, earlier stage, uh, healthcare companies, in essence um and then the big pharma names are considered part of the
0: healthcare sector. So it's never really included things like um gene editing of plants or anything like that what, what I what I now call agri tech for example.
1: Absolutely that's a subsector of biotech um but it's not within the healthcare industry. So if you're looking at investing in a uh, biotech portfolio you're more likely than not just going to have the healthcare end of the biotech
0: sector a lot of the investments would you say they're much more early stage in in a company's development or a company working on a product Um, are we talking here about companies that are almost pioneering where they're actually involved in the in the development of what i would call new technology in this space
1: Yes. And again, it's sort of, um, there are lots of different subsectors within the capital market's definition of biotech. So because the industry has been around for 20 odd years now, and really sort of was born on the back of the sequencing of the human genome uh, in in the early 2000s, we've seen some biotech companies mature into large, almost pharma-like companies. So Amgen and Gilead, which are both in Uh, the bellwether biotech index called the nasdaq biotech index you could say really are farmer like but they started off as a biotech company so at one end you've got these mega cap companies and then at the other end you've got the really nimble innovative early stage companies coming out of universities and then morphing into everything in between so uh, on the venture side um, seed investments they then often move to America if they're say starting in, in the UK they would go and list in America because that's where the money is um, and then they would mature into revenue growth companies so maybe their products would succeed in clinical trials they're a listed company that become more established um, and then they would turn a profit so the whole sector encompasses ideas on the bench in the lab all the way up to these pharma-like companies that's all considered biotech
0: we see some amazing performance from from some of the smaller companies in this space i mean you see some considerable um share price appreciation what's what's the real driver behind that is it is it like you might see in the more general technology space new stuff coming out, masses of enthusiasm. Um, But the actual companies that are producing these early stage medicines are actually really, really small. And in our experience, we've spoken to some in the past where it's literally three guys.
1: Yeah. So, and you've touched on the answer really within your question. Um, Biotech is a forward-looking, innovative, exciting part of the sort of industrial world. So if you're thinking about the future and tomorrow's world, this biotech will always be lumped in within the Teslas and things like that. And we've seen this before. We saw big booms in valuations for very, very early stage companies in the dot-com boom. And biotech was part of that. And we're seeing pockets within biotech exhibiting the same sort of things again. And so we, within our portfolio and, and, and generally biotech portfolios, are wary of valuations and we'll we have a very strict sort of definition of what we think is is a fundamental value of a company so we can see where these inflation um, uh, valuations are happening and recognize it. Now, I think the reason behind that is because it's being lumped in as tomorrow's world, there are you know, certain ETF funds that have within their fund certain specific very small biotech companies with um, exciting, and it's not that to say that they're not exciting, they're just not yet proven technologies. So if you have an ETF, that the whole way the ETF works is if it does well, they have money flows into it, and they then have to invest those money flows back into the underlying assets. And so you're seeing some really, really uh, extreme valuations for incredibly early stage companies. And what's fascinating from our perspective, as specialist investment managers, is seeing the disconnect in valuations at the moment, because there is one, um, namely, Great big valuations for um, cutting edge science matched with or you can compare with companies with drugs that have proven to be working or they're on the market or the companies are making a profit. And these companies, some of them are having this are being valued by the stock market. The same as companies that haven't actually been tested in patients yet so there's this real disconnect at the moment that we're seeing.
0: People have obviously become a lot more familiar with biotech um, recently because there's been so much focus on um, some of the smaller companies that have been involved in developing um, partly Covid vaccines but also the actual testing solutions for Covid as well and I think investors have begun to realize a little bit more about the dynamics of these companies one of the things I've noticed is that the interest in the company and and the price is is frequently driven by things like uh, the approval process and the trials process and this seems a little bit in some respects like like sort of exploration in the natural resources sector there's a lot of enthusiasm for the stock but it's really whether they can get it over the line get it through various trial processes and also all important national and supranational level approvals does that make it harder from your perspective as a fund manager because you are a little bit beholden to to these sort of regulatory barriers uh, medicines have to cross
1: well, absolutely what you're, you're talking about is our bread and butter day-to-day job so uh, we have a huge spreadsheet called our news flow spreadsheet itemizing every single company within our universe all of the re- clinical readouts when they're going to happen um, when are the drugs expected to be approved or not approved all of this is monitored updated every quarter and we, we meet our management teams um, over the phone consistently so this is part of our day job as well constantly talking to our management teams to get a real understanding as to when these readouts happen and the readouts that you're talking about and refer to are what we call binary events and like you say it's like finding oil you know it's very much one minute the stock could be valued at x and tomorrow after a readout it could be valued at 3x. Um, and vice versa. What we try and do to lessen that risks within our portfolio, every portfolio has different approaches to managing this situation, is we invest in liquid companies so that we can buy and sell stock and we get out of those companies ahead of the event. We can't always predict the event, but you can predict it to, some, to a majority extent. Um, so we will sell that asset and we would rather not take that risk, preserve capital, and buy the company back after the clinical event, or the regulatory approval, and then reassess the valuation again at that point. So there are ways of doing this. It takes a lot of work. It take, There are 50 people in our company, SV Health Investors. Two of us are focused specifically on IBT, um, and it's our day-to-day job, you know, what's going on. It's not just what's going on in the company either, it's what competitors out there might have at trial, going on um, in the same disease area as the company that we hold, and we need to watch them as well. So it is very convoluted, it's very complicated, um, and you do get these super returns if if a trial succeeds. But we're um, very cautious on that because it's our belief that a clinical trial, and people have heard about it, it's great to see the mainstream media talking on the front page about phase three trials. You'd never have had that two years ago. So like you say the population is being educated about the process of of getting a drug from bench to to um, medicine and if they have to go through these phase one two and three clinical trials Um, each time it gets more rigorous on safety and efficacy Uh, and then they go to the regulator and ask for approval another event that could slip you know trip them up all of these factors um are in play yeah so that's how we we look at the industry it's uh very very difficult to second guess these events because if you could then you wouldn't have to do a clinical trial if it meant getting a bunch of very smart doctors in a room and they could tell you whether the drug was safe or efficacious they 'd do it, but you can't you need to see real data under controlled circumstances
0: so so just so i get i get them clear on this what you're saying is that with with some of the companies that you hold because there's a risk that it reaches a critical trial stage and it might not get through that and the price may go down um you'd prefer to sell out and potentially lose out on some of that upside if it gets the green light basically um rather than risk the potential downside that it doesn't or it gets told to go back to the drawing board that's exactly right
1: and we're not the only ones so when you uh, another sort of main characteristic that you you find in biotech companies Um, is that that's the source of innovation and big pharma tends to acquire uh, in in innovation. They no longer can innovate internally as as well as external innovation. And what they do is they do the same. They wait for the clinical trial readouts. They wait for the drugs to, to be approved because they don't want to make a mistake, buy a company ahead of a readout and lose all of that money. So it's not, it's sort of a similar mindset if you like. And that's why a number of companies within biotech portfolios are acquired for this very reason they need to get the innovation in there for the next layer of growth
0: Uh, going back to your actual your actual firm you already mentioned that you've got um sort of 50 people working in the business um for a fund manager for a sort of of small to mid-sized fund manager that's a lot of people but that's partly reflective of the fact that you need A lot of expertise. This is not a sector like some other sectors where you might see sort of an analyst shift from doing the motor industry to the aviation industry. This requires biosciences expertise and qualifications. I know you've got a a biosciences degree yourself. Is that something that really sort of distinguishes um, this sector as well, that it's just one that it's very difficult for a generic investor or a generic analyst to really get to grips with?
1: I do actually I think there are you know people can understand the day-to-day experiences of going into a shop or um, driving a car buying a car and all of these things that you can see when you're investing in different sectors and you can bring it to life in your head and you you have a fair understanding of it if you you know basic grasp of numbers etc but biotech is a specialist um, area there's no two ways about it not only that but when we do have 50 people, but we also use KOLs, which stands for key opinion leaders, to get even more insight into an area. So it's, it's incredibly important to be uh, knowledgeable and also have experience. So not just knowledgeable about how uh, pharmacology works, et cetera, but also experience with seeing management teams who are successful, knowing what to look for within management teams um, and the experience of when things go wrong uh, and understanding just the magnitude of the sector as well. Certainly in the US, you know, there are hundreds of biotech companies. Um, when we speak to potential shareholders over in the UK, it's, it, we really have to go back and explain just how vast this industry is and how, how dynamic it is and how nimble it is. And now it's, it's fascinating the conversations we have with people where you can lift the examples that we've got in the press at the moment. Here you go, uh, BioNTech has discovered a vaccine um, and they've partnered with Pfizer um, it's a perfect case study of how how the industry works and how biotech is is innovative and pharma is the is the big workhorse and manufacturing workhorse so it's 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 been really helpful on that side of things
0: what would you say are some of the key downside risks for the sector i mean obviously we've touched on the, the possibility that a drug that a lot of time and money has been invested in is told that it's not going to go any further down the approvals process. Are there any other risks or was that really that's the main one?
1: I, I would say there were other risks so definitely on a macro level a lot of these companies don't make a profit yet and so if interest rates go up your valuation of those companies are going to get hit hardest if your earnings are further out So if we're going to see an equity turn down because of rising interest rates, this has nothing to do with the fundamentals of biotech companies. This is to do with the fact it's a higher beta sector and forward looking, then higher beta sectors will get hit, such as as biotech. So that's sort of the market risk. Then, like you said, there's the company individual risk if they fail on a clinical trial. And you can lessen that by owning a cross spectrum of, of companies. You can have, you know, 30 to 60 names to broaden your portfolio so you lessen that risk. You can trade in and out of companies um, if you know when the events are going to happen. Um, And then also there's political risk. This industry is very political. It's used in the US a lot as a political football, certainly in election years, especially last year, as in every four years. And healthcare is a huge debate. It's a very emotional debate. And our sector can get hit last year when there was a race for who's going to run the dems we had elizabeth warren and bernie sanders who were called the so-called progressives so they believe in a a single-payer system which is what we have over here in the uk the nhs um, and they called it medicare for all and then you had biden who was considered a centrist and biden was part of the obama administration uh, when they built obamacare so he, he he was considered and was vocal about it to be wedded to obamacare um, so at the time, there's a lot of nervousness around investing in this sector, not just biotech but healthcare overall, pharma. Uh, and then when Biden got the ticket, um, uh, that risk sort of lessened. But it's still there. We're st- they're still talking about it today. Um, that that is definitely something people need to have in the back of their minds. And what that risk is, is whether governments in the US will um, start negotiating drug prices instead of just having free drug pricing in the US and try and bring the prices down um for drugs in the US that so that they're more in line with what the Europeans pay for. Uh and I think any reasonable per- reasonable person would would think, yep, yeah, you know, they've got a point. So whether they can manage to get that through is a big thing. The majority in the in Congress is very, very razor thin and it's it's basically 50-50 in the Senate and a very slight Um, uh, majority in the House of Representatives and any sort of proposal like this has to get through those houses there has to be a positive vote for for the new law so because of this very tiny majority that the Dems have we're less concerned that there's going to be major price reforms within the drug industry and not only that but you know look at what look at what the industry's done pull together and found some really quite successful vaccines on the back of of innovation. And you can't argue with that. And hopefully we can all go back to work soon properly in our offices and live life properly again because of those vaccines. I'd find it surprising if there was a foot put down on innovation or, or anything to do with the, the way the market works within biotech that would stifle innovation in any way. Um, it's much more likely um, you would hope, and also it feels logical that the administration would improve, say, the efficiency of, of patients moving on to generic drugs once a generic was available and making sure that the regulator is really, really nimble at, at approving these alternative generic drugs when the patents run out. So, and then also bringing, making sure that prices for established drugs in the longer term, aren't being ratcheted up all the time. So that's the less innovative side of, of the, the cost spectrum, if you like. And hopefully they'll leave the early stage innovative, high free pricing end of the market alone. But it's still a risk and it's out there. And I don't think it will go away in the short to medium term.
0: What are the characteristics that you're really looking for with a, with a biotech investment? I mean, what, what, what's, what's on your wish list for a, a good company for the portfolio?
1: Our perfect company would have a really strong management team who have perhaps built a company before um and, and, and launched a drug before so they've got experience and they're known and they're um qualified, highly qualified. And then the drug that they were working on, for example, had a monopoly. So it was treating an unmet medical need. There's nothing out there for these patients. This is the drug that will um treat them in a in a curative way, for example, ideally. And then that they owned that drug fully, so they haven't partnered it yet. That We like that because there's room there for acquisition. Pharma likes to buy companies that, that have 100% rights for that drug. We at our trust like to look at all different stages of drug development. So in that sense, we sort of lessen the market risk if we don't want to have a whole portfolio full of high beta early stage companies. So we look for all the different characteristics of profits and revenues and then early stage so yeah, I think those three boxes and also if they're not if they're not making a profit or or launched a drug, we would expect them to have at least two years cash. That's another requirement we would have
0: for our investments. I, I know you've got um a small proportion of um the investment trust is in private investments, i.e. unlisted stocks. Um the the private equity slash venture capital market is an active player in, in this part of the sort of the early stage part of the industry. Can you talk a little bit more about you know, their importance of that and how, how the privately owned biotech sector interacts with the public sector? Do you see, for example, lots of new IPOs coming on the market every year or does it come and go? Do you participate in IPOs yourself? And do you see private equity taking some listed companies back off the market again
1: um yes so we're really fortunate because this trust sits within a bc firm that's dedicated to healthcare so we've got a real insight into this space and this is where the real work's done in my opinion so you've got people bodies going to university saying you know share us your best ideas sitting down at the table starting with two people genuinely building companies and turning ideas into So that's, you know, that's genuinely what our VC side do. It's fascinating. Uh, And then at some point they will list. And as I said earlier, they they genuinely go to the US and list. And although on the public side, the US market is the place to go to list, on the private side, the UK is really um, at the forefront and doing wonders in this sector. Um, So it's a really exciting time. And yes, some of those companies then list an IPO, We on the public side have the we may look at any stage so we can look at IPOs absolutely to invest in. And we're seeing a lot of them at the moment and they're getting earlier stage at the moment. So we're not currently uh, investing in the IPO space. What we like to do is wait for the so-called lockup to come off, which is approximately six months after they list. And we know that, you know, in that situation, all of the people that were part of the IPO but didn't want to stay within the company um, longer term would get out so it's at that point we tend to look at the IPAs but we still meet them and get to know the stories and be aware of them.
0: You mentioned already um, that companies tend to list in the US markets um, rather than than over here but at the same time the UK is obviously a a big area of of expertise in biotech and, and We've seen that with uh, some of the breakthroughs, for example, that the UK has already made in in the uh, COVID vaccination program. I know I keep coming back to that, but it is it is what's creating a lot of focus in in this area. I mean, would you agree that the the, the UK is actually a major a major leader, and are there any other countries um, other than the US where you where you sometimes find opportunities as well?
1: Yeah, absolutely, and I would agree with you. They really are, and. The common factors are when you've got university hubs. So you've got this in the East and West Coast in America. We've got this in in the UK, Oxford, Cambridge, London, um, and then also in places like Basel and other European cities. And it's when it's when universities are sat next to industry and are sat next to in, um, capital markets, investors. That's where the ideas are flowing, and and, and you get to see these genuine innovative um, ideas come to life if you like uh, and that we de- and the uk is is absolutely front and center of that innovative side of the the long spectrum of biotech
0: just finally i wanted to ask you um, about the future about the the future of biotech this is obviously um, a sector where there's a lot of uh work being done on the development of new medicines um and it's it's a very much a dare I say, it, futuristic sector. And that's why there's so much, um, one of the reasons why there's so much investor enthusiasm about it. Where do you, where do you see this, this sector going in, in, not just in terms of its growth, but in the sort of evolution of the technology and the evolution of the, the sort of companies you would expect to be investing in, in the next sort of five to seven years?
1: Absolutely agree. And, and this is nothing new in the sense that this has always been an innovative sector. And each year, new different approaches are being born. And often there are things like platform technologies. And I can give you some examples of this. And this is what I remember learning about in university textbooks. So gene therapy, RNAi therapy, which you'll know about from the COVID vaccines, um, cell therapy, et cetera. So companies using these platform technologies And what I mean by that is basically a technology that can address lots and lots of different diseases with lots and lots of different approaches. Um, And so what we're seeing is a sort of compounding of knowledge about both diseases and the drugs that can treat them. And so over time, this compounding is really, really sort of supplying the market with lots and lots of innovative new uh, drugs that would treat an unmet medical need and Um, We're seeing this now today. So what I was learning about 20 years ago in terms of gene therapy, we now have gene therapies that are on the market and we've got CRISPR technologies that are early stage right now. And in decades time, you know, or or half a decade, we're going to be seeing them um, potentially on the market if they succeed in, in clinical trials. And then if you look at other data, you can see that the number of clinical trials ongoing is rising every year. And then if you look at the regulator, how many drugs does the regulator approve every year? That is going up every year, you know, broadly in an upward trend. So all of this is desperately exciting and and you're absolutely right to be excited by it. And we don't really know what the ideas are for tomorrow because it's constantly evolving and constantly changing. But what we do know is that there is still need for better medicines. We still need, for example, better treatments for COVID-19. We, we, the vaccines we've done really well with, but the treatments really haven't been that great, and they've not been particularly practical either, having to administer them in hospital, et cetera. So there's lots and lots of scope for new ideas and new drugs that will that will reach this demand for healthcare. If the population, the elderly population, is going to double in the next generation, you know, who's going to treat these patients? So it's it's this sort of forces of supply and demand that on the supply side all this innovation, constantly throwing out new ideas and, and new drugs matched with the demand of elderly people, you know, dementia, it's a huge cost to society, um, the pandemic, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. That, it's that supply and demand that's, that's really um, has helped biotech perform well in the past and should do, we believe, in the future.
0: That's, uh, that's very fascinating and I would agree with you. I think, I think that the sector certainly has a, a lot of Growth prospects ahead of it. Thank you, thank you very much indeed, Elsa, for coming on the um, on the podcast this afternoon and telling us a little bit more about about the sector and about the growth prospects for biotech. That was um, Elsa Craig, the uh, one of the managers of the International Biotechnology Trust. To find out more about the International Biotechnology Trust, please go to www.ibtplc.com. You've been listening to the Armchair Trader podcast to get uh, up to date commentary on what's happening in the share markets, both in Europe and North America and our views on some of the emerging investment stories in the small cap space. Make sure you check out www.thearmchairtrader.com and sign up to our free daily newsletter.